0: From Grooveview Studios in Columbus, Ohio, this is Getting the Brand Back Together, a podcast exploring the interdisciplinary art of banding, branding, and business building. Rock and roll relic, poet, writer, and brandist, I'm your host, Brad Circone. Today, we are joined by Dr. Roger Blackwell, principal with Blackwell Business Advisors, that serves small businesses and startups. Dr.
1: Blackwell, it is a privilege to have you here today. Thank you so much. It's a privilege to be here. I enjoy these kinds of uh, conversations on the air because I've spent a little time on the air in the past, and I love it. Uh, Yes, I know. So with that being said, let's jump
0: right in because I would like to get as much wisdom from you as we can on this interesting topic that I always get the number of books wrong, but I think you've written...
1: 28 some is that close well if we're trying to be factual it's 40. this it's the last 40. book is saving america and that is the 40. that 40. was number 40 okay yeah, that's the com- that counts my doctoral dissertation which is technically publication but uh didn't sell a whole lot of copies okay okay well with that being said you're the quintessential
0: king in my view of consumer behavior and I just want to start off with just talking about consumer behavior, this idea that, that some people think, you and I might think differently, of course, this idea of brand and branding. How do you think the power of brand, just brand alone, if we isolate that for a second, what do you think the power
1: of or how the power of brand today affects consumer behavior? Well, brand is a shorthand way to represent many many things it's a comprehensive term a brand has two major dimensions of or groups of attributes one are the functional things what its price is what its content is what it does and the other group of attributes is the emotional relationship with consumers and so consumers of course run the economy I, That's correct. I, I teach uh, seminars on behavioral economics quite a bit. Just right. finished three of them in Florida this in week. In Orlando. Yep. And, and people say, well, who's in charge of the economy? And stupid people believe it's the president. <laughs> uh, but the president has about as much effect on the economy as the Boston cheerleaders did on the outcome of the Super Bowl. Right. Uh, they're very visible and they're cheerleaders. But some people say, oh, so it's the Federal Reserve. Well, the Federal Reserve has a big effect on 17% of the economy. Right. Uh, the government has a big effect on 17%. Uh, exports, imports is a oh. subtraction of about 3%. And 70% of the economy are consumers. Consumers. Uh, when you hear GDP numbers, that's whether you went to Lululemon or Aldi yesterday or not, determines that. Right. If you want to know who's in charge of the economy, it's consumers. And that's why I have for quite a few years, studied consumers. So when you think
0: of, I want to talk about those emotional attributes you just brought up, because we have been a branding firm in Columbus over the last 25 years, doing exclusively brand building. When you think of those kind of effectual but sometimes elusive attributes of brands the emotionality or as i think the phrase you used dr blackwell was the relationship with them speak a little bit to those attributes and what do you think are some of the most valuable attributes of a brand that creates purchase intention
1: well i think it's very much like bands that last longer than the one hit wonders Uh, you know we have people who are very good musicians sometimes Sometimes the most popular uh, people are not the best musicians. They're ones that create a relationship with the audience. And it's the difference between, and, and actually the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame uses their criteria. You've got to last for 25 years. Right, right. And some people sell a lot of records for a year or two, two and you never <laughs> hear them again. Um, and their names escape me because you never hear of them again. Right, right. But there are plenty of those that come That's and right. go. And, and, and they have technically very good products, perhaps. And we have that same thing with all kinds of products that consumers buy. Uh, some of them, the ones that are technically very good, uh, aren't well-known as brands, and they don't last. And so, really, it's the way you build that relationship And in the Brands That Rock book, we make the comparisons between Elton John and uh, Aerosmith and Madonna and ones who have lasted many, many years. Elton John probably has the longest longevity of any brand in music you can think of because, you know, 40 years ago, he was popular. He wasn't popular in his early career because he didn't establish relationships with the audience. He was Great technically, point. technically just as good a musician for the first, I don't remember the exact number of years, but I'm going to say five years. Yeah, he did exactly the same thing he did later. But, without, but he connected. But not until a marketing firm helped him go to Los Angeles and they created billboards and everything else. And wow. And he jumped up and down on pianos. And, <laughs> and there was a connection. And there was a connection. And uh, it, it lasted so long. And the reason I say he's multi generational, he's probably multi a other things too, but he's multi generational because with the Lion King, he established relationship with little kids right. that were the kids or grandkids of his original, original fans. Fans, right? And so that's what you want to do with a brand. Those are the brands that last, right? And and if the technical, a lot of people say, "Oh, it's just all emotion with a good brand." No, the brand's got to be really good brand. I mean, we see these problems with Uber and WeWork and brands like that today who may have a lot of uh, emotional liking of them. I used Uber this week and, you know, it was good. But if I were afraid of my safety when I get them, either the cars or the drivers or whatever, uh, people, that brand won't last. Right. And that's why both functional attributes and emotional attributes are part of the brand yes so
0: you just brought up some interesting points number one i want to point out something that you said that is striking to me there are many musicians i used to say this when i was developing my band the toll back in the day two of us ohio state students at the time when we were developing the band and the brand i would say to them there's always going to be somebody better as a pure musician than you are that's not the point the point is human connection through a vessel called music. And it can be as primitive as you want it to be, or it can be as sophisticated, right? As you want it to be. And one of the things that I would always say to them is, and I would say this proudly and only to the band members, that we're a, probably a better brand than we
1: are a musical band. And that's uh, one of the things you can be sure that Stephen Tyler and Elton John and Madonna have done a lot of meet and greets. Well, as famous as they are, why would they need to do meet and greets to sell records anymore? Because they want a brand that lasts. Right, right. Well said. Now, when you talk
0: about these emotional attributes, let's go to businesses for a second and their use of brands. And then I do want you to go back to your book, Brands That Rock, and share with us a little bit about uh, Aerosmith, because I'm fascinated on that topic that we talked about prior to the podcast. So, what is it that you think— Sometimes CEOs or business leaders, in your expertise and wisdom of studying consumer behaviorism, why is it that, in a rock and roll sense, in an art sense, that some organizations, such as a band, seem to innately, organically, Dr. Blackwell, understand branding? And I've worked with and met plenty of CEOs. The company is successful. But there's no brand.
1: What's the disconnect? Well, I think the disconnect is the unwillingness to really concentrate on the relationship with the customer. That's the big difference. Yes, the product may be physically just fine. Or even superior. Or even superior, yes. And if they don't do the other things to create the relationship, I mean, one of the best books on customer service came out just this year by Cameron Mitchell called Yes is the Answer hope all of your listeners have read that book. When I was giving a speech yesterday in Orlando, they knew that Cameron Mitchell has an ocean prime in Orlando, in Miami. He has them everywhere from Los Angeles to Manhattan. Right. And uh, he used to work for Max and Irma's right here. As I was going
0: to say, I think there's a connection.
1: There is a connection there. (laughs) And uh, his whole thing is you've got to have something more than just good food. His food is excellent. Right, I and, agree. And, and he might not like it if I said other people have food just as good, but uh, the refectory does. Correct. <laughs> but he's inculcated himself into all the personnel who work there right. and the ambiance and everything else to create a culture right. that takes care of the customer. And that has created basically a restaurant empire for him. Mm-hmm. And if you haven't read the book, uh, yes, is the answer. I, I really recommend it to a lot of my clients when I'm doing seminars on customer service. Right. And I had a friend who I was talking to recently, and he said, "Oh yeah," uh, he said, "I like his restaurants." And they went to uh, I don't know which one it was now Hudson Twenty Nine or one of them in Arlington there. with his eleven year old for lunch. Right. And they yeah. looked at the menu, and the eleven year old didn't see anything he wanted. Eleven year olds can be very picky about exactly their food. <laughs> exactly. And he said well what do you want he said yogurt and he said well i, I don't see that on the menu uh the weight came around and said what do you what would you like and the kid said i want yogurt do you have that and her answer was yes yes she went across the street Got bought it. some yogurt and brought to it you see that's the difference between the physical product of two different restaurants people say might be great but what the culture that affects everything not only in the kitchen but in the front and everywhere else back of house front of house every touch and uh, uh, restaurant chains that i have worked with over the years once said that the most valuable asset that we have on our balance sheet is an asset that is not on our balance sheet it's our training manuals right and when you go to an aerosmith concert they were kind of one of the first ones to pioneer the b stage and Uh, go out into the audience. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And uh, not just meet and greets and stuff with key influencers, but and uh, 21 Pilots does that. Right, right. I I think there was a reason there were three venues, different ones, some of them double nights, that they sold out. Right. 21 Pilots are very, very good also at creating the relationship with their audience. And those kind of deeper, unique engagements. Yes.
0: Right, that are memorable. And and that they went and got that yogurt— Turned a
1: transactional afternoon into a loyal customer for life and a love affair. Yes, that's right. And, and, and that's one of the differences uh, in our Brands at Rockbook. We distinguish between customers and fans. And, you know, fans comes from the word fanatics. That's right. And uh, a fan of either a brand or a band not only goes to your concert, but they bring their friends with it. Right. right. They become not just customers, but they become evangelists for that company and, and those brands that do it. And, and this is not something new. I mean, Johnny Cash was uh, I, the I, best. I, I hesitate to say a great singer. <laughs> no, he wasn't. <laughs> no. We can say that. I mean, Bob Dylan and Johnny Cash didn't get there because of the quality of their voice. <laughs> no, they, it's not. They, better brand than band. But they had, and one of the things he did was to go to the Folsom Prison. He went to some other prisons too. My favorite. That's one of my favorite. Moments. Albums. Right. I still have albums. Yes, yes. You you need a turntable to play these. (laughs) uh, There aren't too many good examples of (laughs) brands that have been good in the past that went down and came back. But vinyl, actually, I was in a retail store the other day. I don't Uh know if it was Target or Barnes & Noble or somebody. And they have a whole rack of vinyl in there. Yeah, yeah, I know. That's all coming back. It has one of the fastest sales growth of any form of music in the last. Yeah. A few years. Well, so let's, let's talk about that for a second. Okay.
0: I remember getting Alice Cooper's Schools Out record.
1: Alice, and, no. What was she like? <laughs>
0: <Yeah>. <laughs> and talk about, so. brand, talk about brand differentiation, right? From, from Detroit, as I say, it, Alice Cooper. And I remember opening up that little, you know, Schools Out. And it was a desktop. It was a brown desk that you open up. And Billion Dollar Babies also was just as cool looking, but it was a tangible moment with the product that created this intimacy. And I was listening to a collection of Alice's creativity and the band in time. Not everything was great. There were maybe five great songs and that record, actually most songs were great. But the point was, it was a collection of him as an artist in time. And I think about today in the speed of things, the lack of product to tangible touch, which I'm not saying is the end all be all, but there has to be an experiential moment like this. Do you think with digital has many, many conveniences, but this idea of artistic reflection, uh, a gestation period between the last time that I did something artistic and the next time, the anticipation in the got me now, you know, give it to me now. Do you think that there's a price of progression in that we're getting this stuff faster, but we might not be getting it deeper?
1: Well, that's true. And, and it's a tightrope that's very difficult to walk without falling off for brands because it's just like bands. Do you know what bathroom music is for, at a concert? Yeah. That's when the band that you went there because you love their music and you know every lyrics and so forth says the magic words, and now we'd like to play a song from our new album. And everybody it's, goes to the bathroom. Exactly. Uh, I mean, it <laughs> empties out. You watch it next time. you see that. Oh, I know. You're right. You're and, right. Uh, they want to hear, <laughs> and basically much more conceptually, they want to hear the music that's popular enough. in their right. uh, adolescence, usually, right. Right. and young their ages. Youth. Right, in their youth. And uh, the, the, the things that people can do To keep it up to date, they have to bring out some new music. And they have to do that. Or to To remain remain relevant. To remain relevant, absolutely. Uh, And so that's why I say it's a tightrope. It's difficult. You have to move forward, but not so fast that you alienate the preferences of people in the past. And the greatest example of that, uh, maybe the worst example, I would be more accurate, is Coca-Cola. Coca-Cola's brand exists not because it's superior taste to Pepsi. It's because of the emotional connections Correct. that they've created with very sophisticated marketing. And so a few years ago, they actually did marketing research. It's, it ranks up there with the Edsel as the worst example of marketing research <laughs> being translated. They actually went out and did blind taste tests with Pepsi and Coke. Right. Didn't matter whether you're a Coke or Pepsi customer. Right. By far the majority, they ran 70 or 80%. When people didn't know what they were doing, preferred the Pepsi. Pepsi, that's correct. It's a little sweeter. It's a little yeah. bit, there is a slight difference. And, but the people who preferred Coke because all the emotional attachment with Coca-Cola actually preferred, when they didn't know what it was, the taste of, of Pepsi. Pepsi. And so Coca-Cola, because of all these great corporate minds and marketing, brought out new Coke, and Sergio Simon. Sergio's. And, and what happened is it, it got so much that the people, the bottlers, were having so much problem with, they rebelled and were the yeah. ones in Atlanta that said, you've got to change it. Yeah, fix it. And they, there were actually fist fistfights uh, <laughs> in grocery stores over Coke, Pepsi. And so they brought out… New Coke. New Coke. Right. Better tape scene. Well, right. the, the fans… Were so attached to the historic brand of Coca-Cola. And the emotional bonds. That the, the sales were dropping a percentage point a week for sales of Coke. And so they brought out classic Coke, um, which is old Coke. And uh, in a band language, that's called greatest hits. That's greatest hits. <laughs> yeah. that's Most people, their albums of greatest hits are some of their best sellers usually. Right, right, right. That's a great story.
0: Well, tell us a little bit about uh the the your conversation with stephen Tyler in in the, in the book your book Brands that Rock
1: Oh well, we tried to be as factual as possible with uh writing uh, things that we knew would apply to brands and businesses and leadership and leadership and and show that, and so we tried to interview all the people in there uh that we were writing about, and we did arrange an interview with Stephen Tyler at the Waldorf Astoria during a Rock and Roll Hall of Fame induction thing. Not for him, but he was uh, presenting it to somebody else. For somebody else, yeah. Yeah. And and so, uh, interestingly, just prior to that, he had won the Teen Album of the Year Award. Mm -hmm. I don't even know whether they still give that or not. but uh, Back then, and I said, (laughs) Stephen, really? Really, how does a (laughs) 60-something... win the Teen Album of the Year Award. Uh-huh. And he pointed to a bracelet. And I tell the story in the book. Yeah. And, and actually in some of my other books, because it, it translates to any place. He had a, a, a bracelet made out of diamonds, letters. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it's P-A-S-S. You could probably finish it in your mind. I-O-N. Passion. And Steven Tyler said, it's passion for what we do and who we do it for Uh, and that's what he does and that's what great companies do i know companies that if something goes wrong with their product just like i was talking about with cameron mitchell's restaurant things their passion is to get it right for the customer right not because they'll lose their job or lose the customer that's you know that's a a effect that you don't want it to happen but the real they just have a passion for their customers. Right. And protecting and
0: connecting to that relationship and protecting that relationship at all costs. That's true. And it doesn't
1: matter whether you mean uh, a physical product or a service like a physician, uh, healthcare. Right. uh, And there's all kinds of diets and so forth. And if you look at the ones that are most successful, it's people with a brand rather than just... Science. The science. Right, right. Well said.
0: I was thinking about in, in um, we did some research for some, a couple uh, theatrical businesses in town. And one of the things that we did was study some key uh, musicians and artists. And, and one of those that we studied was Pete Townsend. And what I found fascinating, because Roger, what we're doing, obviously, as a branding firm, is we're looking for, those points of difference at every, and we, we build a platform of differentiation around that and hand it back to the country, company and hopefully they can activate those differences. But when I was thinking about Pete Townsend's career, you know, um, and we did some research on this and I'd like to he- hear your thoughts about this. He's one of the only artists that single-handedly, the Who, invented three rock genres. Hmm. He invented, with Kids Are All Right, he invented the term power pop. It wasn't even a term when they were doing the mod stuff. Mm -hmm. He then invented the first rock opera, right, with Tommy. And then he is known as the godfather of the Clash and the Sex Pistols, calling him the godfather of punk. Because at Woodstock, he said, get the F off my stage. He smashed guitars. And of course, uh, Keith Moon on the kit was doing the same thing. So here is a musical act. When we talk about that fan base and greatest years, here's a musical act that is, that is really pushing the brand guidelines right. far and deep. And yet people feel so connected with Pete's writing ability, his intimacy. I mean, Behind Blue Eyes, some of his songs are, they're intimate. How do you think that someone like that is able to invent and sustain Three categories of differentiation as a cohesive brand and they're still touring today.
1: Can a business do that and I wish I could explain it as well as just superior intelligence or uh, he has an m b a he has an m b a something like that <laughs> but uh i I don't know and uh, uh how he's done that, but I agree with you that's what he has done. He's been iconoclastic that's the word over what five Decades. Five decades. Yeah. And, yeah. Uh, and, and and people do that. The more successful a firm is, mm-hmm. the more likely it is to fail in the future. And the reason is because great success reinforces us to keep doing what we've been doing. Sure. And so to break the mold and do Three something times. different. Right. That is, that's very unusual. And uh, the only consulting job I've ever been fired from. <laughs> <laughs> um, this is admitting something. Okay, uh, it was a big consulting g- contract. Okay, for a major firm, one of the best brands in the world, All one of right. the best distribution systems in the world. Okay, and I wasn't being h- hired to do marketing research. I was doing a train the trainer session. Yeah, I was going to train their employees, key employees, how to do marketing research. Okay, and then after we did one for them here in the U.S. They were going to, we we're going to do a second session where we brought people from all over the world because they were world basis, a company and a global brand, and then do the second. Well, we did the first one. And to do that, I actually had them write the questionnaire for the company, Okay. go to shopping centers and actually do the research and come back the next morning and report it. Okay. And it was kind of pretty amazing what was going on because they were, they found some facts that none of them had been thinking about. A few days later, the people who hired me called me in and said, we don't want you for the second session. Basically, <laughs> they said, you're fired. Yes. I said, why? Uh, and, and I said, I thought, our people really like this session? Right. And they said, yeah, but you created so much consternation in our firm that there's something our firm may not be here in the future. Wow. And from which, those insights. From those insights that they got in what might be called a pilot study. Sure. It wasn't good, solid research. It was just a, a fairly small sample. Right. Well, can you guess what that company was? And what the results of our little pilot study was? The company was Kodak. Wow. And they did fire me. And they said, they, well, they said, we'll pay you the balance of the contract, but we don't want you right. <laughs> <to> talk, <laughs> get corrupting, the hell away. corrupting our employees anymore. And, of course... If Kodak had it understood the benefit that they were delivering rather than the technical product by which way they were delivering it, because they made their money on film. Right. And when film went away with digital, that was it. Kodak went bankrupt, of course. And to uh, your point, they didn't own that customer relationship. That's right. And, and, and they would have had to adapt. Mm-hmm. And actually, I told them that. And they said, Roger, we've got this covered. We've put 55 minute processing things in the Walgreens and the shopping centers. We're, Grace on shopping there. We'll, we'll take care of it. We'll take care of it. We've, we understand <laughs> that. We've already done it. We have spent millions of dollars of capital investment on these 55-minute processing. I said, yeah, but the customer's still got to bring it in and come back later. Even if it's 55 minutes later, they got to come back. Right. They don't want to do that. They don't want that when they can do it with digital. Right. If they had have done that, they would have probably developed, because uh, other people had the technology. Sure. But uh, Steve Jobs says, hmm, maybe we could just add that to a phone, you know? And, uh, <laughs> and he had the relationship with customers, sure, of course, too, sure. that Apple has done over years sure. Through music, he yeah. built... Well, he's done it through the personal computer,
0: obviously, but when that first iPod came out and they made that decision to own music in the
1: hearts and minds of Americans, how big of a branding move was that? I was at a Rock and Roll Hall of Fame event the night a few of the avant-garde musicians had an ipod yeah and everybody was borrowing it to hear wow right this is i mean and, and i don't think that i understood then that that's the future of music yeah so yeah
0: so you brought up some great things in that example about kodak that was something i wanted to talk to you about today and that is
1: and, culture and brad when i do seminars now I, I say, don't let your firm be Kodak. <laughs> right, right, right. That's great. Culture is such a buzzword
0: today and this idea of you know brand culture and creating true brand cultures. And it seems like oftentimes in the businesses that we have interfaced with or we've read about, Dr. Blackwell, that there seems to be an, an acculturation process and that the brand is, or the business is trying to acculturate its employees to what they're already doing, rather than necessarily giving them a a more democratized voice. You and I could probably name off the companies that are doing it right. What do you think, you know, this idea of uh, a culture, let alone a brand culture to live by and believe in, that's not hokey, but that's real and authentic. When I talk to marketing people, no matter their position, well-established CEOs. And I bring up the idea of, we can create this brand for you, but can it live in the current culture? Otherwise, we should not start this project because it's not gonna go anywhere. Why is this concept of brand culture? I have feelings about, from from a rock and roll entertainment's perspective, why it's easier for a band to develop culture very quickly but a business,
1: not so easy. No, you're absolutely right. And uh, uh, when I do seminars on, I have one that I call uh, value-based customer service. And it's really about how the culture develops the customer service, not the rules, not the even the manuals, but the culture. And culture or value systems are two things. One, they're... In textbook terms, they're called terminal values and instrumental values. Okay. Terminal values means the words that we put down. And most good corporations today have a statement of their values. Sure. These these are words. Uh, That's what your goal is and what you're striving for. But then the instrumental values is the norms of behavior by the people who work there. Hence the hard part. Hence the hard part. And uh, some companies will have two weeks of for new onboarding of employees just teaching the culture uh one of the best i I work with family owned corporations mostly now Mm -hmm. and one of those uh that i'm very impressed with is the mars corporation and one of the things that uh, they do is give a 27 page booklet to each of their new employees signed by the family members who own that company and they really work at that now i love that and and you know they make snickers and m&ms and all these sorts of things but to your point about adapting to the culture you know what their fastest growth area of the mars corporation is well uh over the last few years it has been imes because they bought imes away from procter and gamble Mm -hmm. who really didn't know how to use that and they put the money into IMS and Calcan and, and they have a lot of pet brands now. And an entire <laughs> portfolio. entire portfolio, including which will grow the, f- the fastest in the future? Will it be physical products or services? And if you study marketing, you services. know it's services. Um, so what have been the two most recent acquisitions of Mars Corporation? Banfield and VCA the two largest veterinary clinics all over the world. I bet you we have a lot of people around who pay as much for pets as they do kids. Yeah, yeah. Uh, With uh, a golden retriever and two kittens. Right. Uh, I'm a pretty big client of one of the vet (laughs) products here, (laughs) services here in Columbus. I know you
0: are. I know from personal experience being out with you that you
1: are. Yeah what's the most important family member today in terms of growth in it's pets? Yes, yes. And, and marketers got to follow
0: that. I'm sure Casper will be on that, right? Yes. They're trying to, Casper is trying to do, you know, this, this product service system, PSS, which is this idea that it's not just about just doing products and services, but we're setting up a PSS in a system, an ecosystem of your behavior to sell services. Yep.
1: Absolutely. And and service packages, that's the future. And, And that's why a lot of VC money is going into services. Now, relating back to culture, Uber is an example of a service that most people who use it like. But if you don't have, if the founder has bad values, he will end up with. People working there
0: that have bad values, and hence cannibalize the differentiated service yes. that created all the money for the company in the first place. Exactly. Yeah.
1: That's fascinating. So, actually, it, you know, words don't words don't create the culture. They they reinforce it and help it, and they're, they they guide tr- it. They guide it in training, but it's it's only if those behavioral norms become typical of the firm right. does the culture really impact the customers right and in my saving america book um i i have chapters on various people including dave thomas um and some of them I say well he was an ohio state graduate i don't say that about dave uh because you know he 10th grade was as far I know. as he, he went. right and the chat that chapter in the saving america book is called why are hamburgers square I wonder if most of your listeners know why hamburgers are square. Well, I I can read that book and find out. (laughs) Exactly. Or should we tell them? I think we should. Okay. But that's a good tease. Spoiler alert if you read the book. The reason is because he says when it comes to taking care of customers and actually everything in life, don't cut corners. And that's why they're square. And and his daughter, Wendy, actually… Read the chapter and helped me. Oh, that's on that great! Chapter and uh, and so forth. Now, if you look at their corporate website, yep. they have very nice words in there that describe their values. Quality yes. is our recipe, yeah. and so forth. Like, Which I love that line. Yes, and those and those are good things. Yes, values include words. However, and I've heard Dave because I worked for him quite a bit actually, and one of the things he boiled all these nice big words down to. Just be nice, <laughs> exactly well, that's the simple thing, and if you can get that culture ac- across and um, right you know he's, he started with from a little uh, garage, literally from Lynn Amke gr- garage part of that was, was it really as, yes. part of Lynn Amke? yes, and uh, uh, wow, and, and went on to develop uh, right. the number two chain, um, even though was, McDonald's was much bigger when he started and. It was because of his values. Yes. That's great. It's also because of his chili too, which one of his values is frugality. You know, why do they have chili at uh, Wendy's? Because they serve fresh beef, frozen, never. Fresh, cooked to order exactly the way you want it. Well, if you keep, how can they do that and have quick service? The answer is they have to put things on their grill that are cooking all the time. Then you tell them whether you want pickles or... Right. What you want with what, it. Your customization. But but you have hamburgers that have been cooked that are left over sometimes. So well, we make a new product. So you make chili. <laughs> right, exactly. And you use that, which really saves money. And, and other competitors, they just have to throw them away. Right, right. Waste. Right. When, when they cook them up ahead of time so that you can grab them, which everybody's read probably seen the McDonald's movie, which described that. Right. And um, the. The people who figure out how to keep the words being the way behave are the ones who have brands that last. Yeah, well said. So from live
0: performing artists, of all your years in the arts, what's your favorite live artist that you've seen, that you've sat and watched, that that
1: moved you? Well, sometimes people ask me, my favorite singer, and it's always a Mahalia Jackson— And Diana Ross would be my tops, but Diana Ross would be my favorite because uh, I was uh, giving a speech for a client in um, the Dairy Association with a lot of people in the audience at Caesar's Palace Right. and rehearsing for my presentation in the morning, a business seminar, uh, the stage manager said, what are you going to do tonight? And I said, well, I'd go to hear Diana (laughs) Ross tonight if I could get a ticket. And he said, let me work on that. And he got me a ticket right next to the stage. There was a runway stage, because she goes out in the audience. And people who saw her live right. uh, know that she'll sometimes put the microphone and down and ask them who they are. Or what, And she put the microphone down, and I said, reach out and touch. <laughs> And she went off mic and she said, are you a professional <laughs> singer? I said, no. And she said, come on up here. And so I got up on the stage in Caesars Palace. That's and, unbelievable. And sang a duet with uh, Diana Ross. So, so she's my favorite singer. <laughs> that's
0: unbelievable. That's a great story.
1: Why do you think it's
0: important for bands, brands, and businesses to remain
1: disruptive? Well, that's a good question. Uh, and unlike some of your... Guess maybe, and in speakers. Uh, if I don't know the answer, I'll say, I don't know. <laughs> uh, I don't know. I haven't really ever thought about that. Uh, I, I suppose the, really the actual answer would be because the world changes yeah. and the technology changes. Uh, I just heard somebody on the morning TV show this morning talking about uh, AI and robots was going to replace all jobs. Well, it's, that's, people were saying that in the 1800s. They're called Luddites. And they actually went out and, to these steam engines uh-huh. and broke up the, the the engines that ran the factory machines okay. because they said it's going to do away with all factory workers. Well, we know. Actually, the interesting thing is um, we have replaced factory workers with automation more than sending things to other countries. A lot of people think, uh, oh, we've sent a whole lot of... Uh, Our factories to other countries. No, we didn't. 13% is all that the other 85% or more was to automation. Right. And that will continue to happen. We will need as many people in factories in just a few years as we do on farms. Now, which agriculture is. 100 years ago, 70% of all workers were on the farm. That's right. Well, we produce more. That's in your book. Yeah. And we produce a lot more agriculture products now. With very few workers. And we have done the same, have done, and will continue to do the same thing in factories. But here I just read the other day that now the most, um, uh, the new employees of factories typically have college degrees now. And because. Because they're running the bots. I was in a factory here in Ohio just recently. It's the largest factory of its type in the world. Okay. Okay. And these are a lot of factory workers. They look like factory workers, mm-hmm. but they're sitting in a big control room right. w- with computers everywhere. Because if you can't program the computers to do the cobots work, right. uh, maybe robots too, then you can't be a factory worker. And that's not what the government is going to do. The government can't say, okay, you got to learn programming. People have to do that on their own. And in fact, there's a new book by Clayton Christensen called The Prosperity Paradox. I find more favorable reaction to that than any book I talk about uh, in seminars. And it points out if you don't have the opportunity for upward mobility, you won't bring innovation like that into the factories or the fields or any kind of service. Right, right. And the person sitting over there, it says hey brad i'm gonna have your job in 10 20 years and does what's necessary to do that right we'll have that job right nobody's gonna give it to you no Right. Well, you gotta go out and get it Yep. and find that opportunity yeah and that's i think a misunderstanding about the economy that a lot of people have you cannot make you cannot make poor people prosperous by making prosperous people poor right well said Econ- economics is not a zero-sum game right 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 exactly
0: what do you think of um, now that we're talking about uh, cobots and robots and automation? And I want to go back to the original thing that we were talking about about con- you know consumer behavior. What do you think? Um, what's your give and take? of the efficiencies and the speed that we talked about that automation technology does for the digital typography and what it's done for getting products to us at our fingertips and the control we have. That's all wonderful. What do you think it's done though on that relationship building for consumers? A quick story comes to mind. I, I find Amazon to be amazing. I find what Prime does to be amazing. And that they say, here are my orders, here's some things that I like, right? So they are actually looking at my personal shopping anthropology, if you will, mm-hmm. and they are giving me a connection in a way. Uh, it's a virtual one, it's not the same as your yogurt, yogurt example at Cameron's. What do you think we lose and gain when it comes to the consumer and that relationship between the brand? in this, in this
1: digital scape? Well, uh, we actually have to do both. We know that omni-channel marketing is the way everybody has to go. Maybe some people can do mostly, but the great examples are uh, Casper and Warby Parker and these. You, You can't have an online glasses firm like Warby Parker without having some stores right. where people can go to. You right. really need both. And people learned that with online trading and uh, uh, Charles Schwab and people like that as well. And, and, and I believe that's where we're going. And I, don't, I haven't been, not been in one, but I've talked to people who have been in the Amazon Go stores, mm-hmm. which have stores with no employees to interact with customers. Of course, my response is what's new about that Sears and Macy's have been doing that for years exactly uh, exactly and if you look at the the kinds of things that people can do they can adapt and change over time and always it's the relationship rather than the specific method of establishing relationship and to go back to the uh, The example of Amazon specifically, uh, I would not be surprised if they don't buy Kohl's in the future. Mm
0: -hmm. I Uh, think that's what the play is right now, don't you? Don't you think it's a courtship?
1: Just like Whole Foods. Yes. Whole Foods was a way of really getting zip code locations with twice the average income of other zip codes in the U.S. Bingo. And Kohl's is a, a relationship now. And I read one study that said, there's a study, it was a report that said that 80% of the people who take something back to Kohl's to return to Amazon, I mean, how can they, uh, How can Kohl's afford to do that? They don't even charge people for mailing it back. Well, the answer is 80% of people buy, buy something, something at Kohl's. I've
0: done it twice. Yeah. I've gone back for Amazon returns, yeah. and both times I've bought something from yeah. Kohl's.
1: And when people establish relationships between corporations and so forth, it sometimes ends up with the companies being acquired by right, them. Right. And I actually like to use the Kohl's example. It's why we don't have a Lazarus or lots of other department stores. Kohl's and Lazarus were almost identical 40 years ago. They were both traditional department stores with sales people all through the store. Sure. Well, Kohl's figured out that it's a whole lot cheaper to have four or five People taking the money at one place in the store than having forty or fifty spread out. Spread out,
0: sure. Whole Operationally, that's a nightmare. Compared, yeah, it's, it's
1: inefficient. Yeah, and and and. But that was customer traditional service. Traditional department stores didn't do that because right. they had had been very successful doing what they'd done for hundred years. Right. And Coles said, "Well, we've got to change a little bit," and they did. Uh, sometimes, no customer service is the best customer service. The world's largest grocery store chain, probably, we don't actually have numbers to prove that, but uh, is Aldi. Right. And German-based, German, a, German based, right? German-based, the richest family in Europe. Right. They also own Trader Joe's. And they're both identical in terms of their operations procedures, although different market targets. Like sure, that. sure. Uh, but the… Uh, You don't wait at their lines because they have changed the supply chain so that the UPC code is on at least three sides of every package. And they can only do that because they have contract manufacturers that can't sell anything to them unless they agree to do that.
0: Which I think this is just genius. And so they're passing on. I read an article from Ohio State. I'm sure you're very familiar with it. Um, And I think you and I have talked about it before. Is this concept of functional shiftability. Yes. Right.
1: <laughs> One of the three most important marketing concepts in the Saving America book. And that's what I was lecturing on yesterday in Florida. In okay, that's
0: great. So I am, you, and, you actually introduced this to me uh, when I first met you years ago, this idea of functional shiftability. And it is the idea of taking a function inside the chain and moving it to somebody else's responsibility inside the chain if they want to play inside the chain. Right? Yes, exactly. And that's why they they say, we'll carry that product and we'll buy a lot from you and we'll do it for an extended period of time, but you will help us create efficiencies by putting a UPC
1: code on three sides. Exactly. And the same thing with carts. um, Give me a quarter. uh, Give me a quarter and we'll give it back to you when you bring the cart back so we don't have to hire all these people to bring in carts or pay the insurance for them dinging into other cars. Right. Or like most grocery stores, have carts with two wheels on the front that wobble in opposite directions. Right, right. Uh, and they've changed the, the, shifted the function of performance to the consumer at the case of Aldi. And that is where we're going to have real issues to be solved in the future of online ordering of grocery stores. Because, okay, so
0: talk to me about this because that's going to be my next question.
1: Well, I have heard from some grocery people that they lose $7 every time somebody orders groceries online. Because who picks and packs the groceries in a grocery store? The consumer. Right. Now you have to hire somebody. Right. It's a reverse functional shift. At, at least $12 or $15 an hour right. plus benefits and right. all that stuff. It costs you 5 to $10 to pull up, fill up a cart sure. of somebody's order online. Now, you can argue that, uh, well, you could do that with robots in a factory and so forth. And people try to. Web van tried to do that right right went broke trying to do that uh and so uh, restaurants have the same problem if they have to pay a pretty substantial percentage to somebody to deliver it for them most of them don't have that percentage built into their profit margin right right so they've got to either charge more to consumers or go out of business and those that's uh that's one of the real interesting issues to look at grocery and online delivery of anything
0: anything yeah like, like furniture yeah uh, it's got to be picked it's got to be you know, if, if it's large enough it's going to hit a forklift sometime
1: well your example of furniture is is really interesting because uh, casper solved a whole lot of functions you see if you're going to sell mattresses it's genius they've you've got to you've got to hire somebody to make them in a factory Hopefully, you have the things that people will buy Pay somebody to load them on a truck and take them to the store, often with an intermediate distribution point.
0: In between, yes, in you're right. In between, right.
1: and then take them, and take them to the store. You've got to pay money for very expensive retail space to have them displayed there, and then you have to… And
0: large space, they're not small. They're not, it takes… It's a lot of square footage.
1: Exactly. And you've got to finance that whole thing. That's right. Cost of carrying. right. Casper comes along and says... Let's put it in a box. Let's put it in a box and (laughs) ship it to your home. (laughs) Eliminate all those expenses. That's genius. And we can probably sell you a a mattress that people may believe, and I actually do believe, is just as good as the one done the old conventional way. Mm -hmm. And is never obsolete because they don't make it until people order it. Right. That was the genius between Michael Dell. Right. You had to make you had to decide what computers were going to buy if you were IBM or something about a year, a year ahead before of the consumers right. bought them. <laughs> and obsolescence is a big risk there. Especially in the technology business. And Michael Dell said, not only do we not make the computer until you tell us exactly what kind of drives and everything you want, you pay for it now because we don't have to pay for our sup- to our suppliers until about 60 days after right. you pay us. Right, right,
0: right.
1: And he, he could run them. The, make computers for free and just take the money on it. Right, right now, it's like Ticketmaster and StubHub and people like this do. You, you pay, the consumer pays now, but they don't pay the person who gets the ticket until the event occurs. Right, right. Just holding the money is worth quite a bit.
0: A bit, it is. And so when you bring up these great examples of Casper, which is, by the way, one of my favorite brands for what they've done with the brand, how simple they've made it. Operationally, what you're talking about, a functional shiftability I have one because I'm so enamored with it. And I respect the hell out of the thought, the strategy that they have put into their product. With that being said, if you think about functional shiftability, again, that you turn me on to, that I see all around me now, it's a kind of a scary thing. But you think about things like um, Shazam and Spotify. So there's no record label. There might be music on there that isn't sought after yet but they might use how a young artist is doing on spotify they're not making an investment back in my day dr blackwell it was uh oh we'll give you a development deal now we got very fortunate and got a two album contract with a large upfront commitment from geffen records in the day in 88 93 that was great but today in working with some younger artists it's one and done and we'll see how that one does there's no upfront investment there's no creative services there's no how do I say it? Artistic intention creation, right? Help us to be a better artist, unearth what we already know, but we're too young to realize because we were young, right? Right. Now you have these- And a few of them signed away their rights and later wished they didn't. Oh, I was reading an article the other day in preparing for this that CBS- S- signed bands that I know knew personally back in the day, The Clash and The Psychedelic Furs. The Psychedelic Furs helped us get a record deal because I met him in New York City, the, the bass player of The Psychedelic Furs. They were on CBS, and The Cyclic Furs deals was seven albums and out. They owned nothing, had to pay for everything. And The Clash was 10 albums and out. And they used those as the perfect wrong ways to do record deals for, for artists. Yeah. But my point is, nowadays, we've got we've got Spotify. We've got these labs. Where the functional shiftability, the record company, whether they chose it or not, it is passed along to these application platforms, these wonderful music platforms that are vetting, trend-setting, emerging, non-signed artists so that they can be cherry-picked by a label. And the label saves functional shiftability, all that development, time, resources, talent, creative services, to throw something up against the wall and get it recorded. They can cherry-pick it from consumers
1: that are saying we like this in this area. Absolutely, and that's, that's one of the valuable things about online is that you have instantaneous feedback of and data. how this idea is working. Right, right, and yeah. data. And Brad, one of the things that when you mentioned uh, uh, Casper and it relates to keeping up with disruptive technologies by firms that have been around a long time, do you know who one of the major investors in Casper is?
0: Target. That's why
1: you can target, target has distribution of exactly. it. Exactly.
0: Yeah. They started with their pillows and I was enamored by that. And then they put in small
1: mattress. It's the same thing that you were talking about reversely, right. the, what was going on with Amazon. Well, you know, one of the times uh, I was a visiting professor at Stanford Graduate School of Business one year, and they brought me in to teach the strategic planning course. Yes, And I had taught marketing more and other courses, consumer behavior and so forth. But I love teaching strategic planning because that's this is the kind of thing that you deal with with strategy. Right, right, right. It's a decisive allocation in a major course of action, and frequently it has to be a different course, a different direction than you're currently heading. Exactly. Right, right, right. Tell us about
0: your pioneering model of of consumer decision process, and now how you think that
1: model has changed over time. Well, uh, we wrote it, and when I say we, it's Jim Ingo and Dave Collett and I, Jim. Uh, was the professor here that recruited Dave and me to work at Ohio State. I did not know that. That's great. Uh, Yeah, and Dave Collett left Ohio State and eventually became uh, the person in charge of marketing for Victoria's Secret at L Brands until very recently, still on L Brands board. Jim Engel went to Wheaton College using the very same stuff that we talk about. Uh, People sound this strange. What? The same principles that explain... Victoria's Secret, or in my case, Max and Irma's Restaurants or right. others, and evangelism in a Christian college. Yes, how people behave doesn't, doesn't change. The, right. The, well, how they behave changes, but the process doesn't. doesn't. And that's what the EKB model was all about. And we wrote the first textbook on that. And it's in its 10th edition now, used all over the world. In fact, I just got an invitation to speak at the State University of Georgia. Well, I didn't even know where that was. Right, it's hundred miles north of Istanbul. Yeah, I was going to say. <laughs> um, and the reason is because that Georgia. Yeah, they that book is in Russian, and they yeah. teach it in Russian. And it's in an in tenth edition. Tenth edition. It's congratulations. Um, about a dozen languages and so yeah. forth. That's and amazing. It, it kind of pioneered the, for the whole field. There hadn't been any book prior to that as, as a textbook. There have right. been books on consumer behavior. Right. And the process of going through stages of decision making, we have to become awareness. But the first stage is always we have to be aware of a problem. We have to recognize a problem. And if without a problem, there is no product. So and, what Kodak didn't do with you. Yeah. They didn't
0: recognize it. They knew it, but yeah. they didn't recognize it. Yeah. They didn't live right. with
1: it. They, didn't, they said, our job is to make the best film in the world. Right. Well, you You're messing
0: with the wrong problem.
1: Right. Exactly. <laughs> and, I, and, they, and I said, because they said, here's what they said to me, they said, you can never get the quality digitally that you can with film. <laughs> I said, okay, but what if convenience is more important than quality? Quality. And today, I think you actually can get quality. I agree one, with you. Uh, maybe even I don't know better, but I know,
0: know commercial photographers who used to shoot on old film say now today they prefer
1: digital. Yeah, that's one of my other early careers. As I was a professional photographer for a while. Oh, I did not know with that thirty-five millimeter film. Right. Uh, but anyway, the uh, kinds of things that people do, really, they have to focus on how the environment is changing. And musicians probably have been more sensitive to that than business people in the past. That's why we can look to music sometimes as knowing where this is going.
0: And I people, love that point. Yeah. That, that's true. Artistically, you
1: have to. Cost of entry as an artist. Is to have your finger on the pulse of what's next. That's right. And, and there, are, there are academics who actually study how folk music, not just now, but for hundreds it's of years, years, have reflected the c- cultural values of the times. Right. Whether it was uh, you know, medieval chants or uh, uh, in the monasteries, you could go find music happening right. that reflected the culture of that, the, right. that right. time. And go back to Egypt. We now know that they had instruments Correct. to play music with, right? And so, uh, the music is the water that washes away the dust of life.
0: That's well said. Okay. I did. We did a brand for you know Promo West, and, and um, we worked with Scott Steiner,er one of my former students. Yes, and he's coming in the. He's coming to the podcast today. Oh, good. Say hi to him. For I, I will. And we positioned his brand as you know his concert venues and that whole portfolio. As, um, you know, music is the soundtrack of our lives. Yep. And it is. And to your point, it's it has its finger. That's a cost of entry. It understands
1: how to be relevant all the time. And why do people mostly prefer the music of their adolescence? Because what else were they discovering during their adolescence? Right, right. A few happy things. (laughs) Some happy moments. (laughs) Well said. You talk about, quickly,
0: as we wrap up here, in in your book, Brands That Rock, you talk about the unique ability of rock and roll to inspire, you used the word earlier at the top of the podcast, Dr. Blackwell, the fanatical support from its customers. And I love the word you use here, the, the... You know, um, you say it's undeniable the loyalty you know showered upon the Stones and Elton John and things like that. Um, Do you think today, from your twelfth edition of this idea of consumer decision process and what I call purchase intent, PIDs, purchase intention decision making, do you think that it's changing? I know consumer behavior change, but how your creating purchase intention do you
1: think that is changing over time well the the vessels we use the process isn't changing so much we use different techniques obviously to search in the past we had to go to a physical store and compare one color or one <laughs> brand or so forth.
0: Today it we, sounds
1: so it, funny now, doesn't it? Yeah, it, it does. Uh, and, and we didn't even know what the store had there unless no, we, we had, had to go see. Right, We had to go travel. Now we can do that online. A lot of people won't go to a retail store if they don't find out whether they have it now. Right. Now, one of the challenges for retailers is to keep an inventory support system that tells you what they have in there. Because customers walk around and pick stuff up and pay take it to other places. And so, Correct. If, if you send somebody to say, oh, we'll look at the, it's gone. No, we're out <laughs> Those of Those pants, are, we're out. <laughs> but you find out, my wife just uh, recently, we, we we have a former student of mine who has quadruplet, quadruplet children. Oh my goodness. And we were taking a gift in Florida to right. them. Well, what do you have to have? You have to have four of the same thing. Ohio State stuff, of right, course. Right, of course. And uh, this first licensing agreement that Ohio State made with Disney. So, we were able to take Ohio State Brutus to Orlando. I mean, you know. but <laughs> my wife talked to the uh, store employee, and she, they said she said I need four of these. Found one, and he said we only have three. She said, Oh, well, I, I got to have four. Right. And he said, I don't even know whether we can get them quickly or not or anything. And she was walking in someplace else and found the fourth one because somebody had picked it up and, and take, moved it yeah. to your point. And those are the things that drive data based inventory control systems crazy. Crazy. Uh, because you, there's just, well, I started to say, there's no way. Actually, Walmart now has robots to take inventory control that they're using in the stores.
0: Oh, I did not know that. They're, they're not using robots to
1: interact with consumers, but no. they are for inventory control. Sure,
0: sure, sure. That makes sense. Yep. So are actually very smart. It's, it's working. They're for the case you just said, we only have three. You actually have four in store. We just don't know where the other one is. Right. And the robot can find it.
1: Right, right. Um, fairly quickly. I yeah. wonder what kind of technology they're using yeah. to do that. Oh, that's well, fascinating. Well, there once was a time when RFID technology was going to be the way. But the problem is the RFID tags, it's very hard to get them low enough Two or three cents is still fairly high to put on packages. Every product, that, every skew. Yes, every skew. Yeah. And now for high value items, you know, you know what some of the drugstore people have told me is the most frequently shoplifted product. Pregnancy tests, <laughs> probably for multiple reasons. Yes. A, they're fairly expensive. And, and B, embarrassment And embarrassing. Right, so right, right. They ha- So they put RFID tags on things like that that are high shop list stuff. But right. for most things, it's too expensive. But- That's great. That's funny.
0: Uh, last word here in, in wrapping up the podcast. In, in this idea of brands that rock and what you and I have been talking about today, what is the single most, whether it's a band, whether it's a brand or a business. As you and I know, there's many businesses that don't necessarily have brands. They can be very successful businesses. They don't have brands. There's many bands, as you started this conversation, that don't have a brand, but they're a technically good musician. He can sit in a recording studio like this today and play as if a mathematical engineer on the neck of his guitar. It doesn't mean he understands performance branding. If you were to pick one attribute, that's true about banding, you know, bands, brands, and businesses. When it comes to talking or connecting with that consumer uh, and that whole pathway that, that you've written out about consumer behavior, what do you think the one thing, the most critical thing, attribute, whether it's a band, brand, or business building
1: regarding consumer behavior? Well, I believe the most important thing is to start with a customer and work back. And that takes you through all those. You know, that's what Jeff Bezos did. He started out to it make is what, the world's largest uh, bookstore. And then it became, and he did that in about two years. World's largest online, he did that. And then uh, the world's largest retailer, and he did that. They changed their mission. Uh, in, as he learned from the consumer. As he learned uh, to, to be the world's most customer-centric firm. And what does that take you into? <laughs> Almost Everything. everything. Right. And that you start with the customer and, and work back, um, and those are the kinds of things that you ask how we wrote that consumer behavior book. We looked. I did all the sociological, anthropological, demographic studies from 1900 to 1960, and Jim. Engel Sixty did, years. Yep, and Jim Engle did with the same thing with psychology, and Dave okay. Collett did decision theory, economic wow. stuff. That's how we wrote the first textbook. We took everything we knew. That was known, not that we knew. No, that was known. That was known by empirical studies. Sure. And then brought that into the decision model. The model hasn't changed, uh, adapted, modified. Sure, sure, But you start with a customer. And, you know, when a customer, the old, old example that Ted Levitt in Marketing Myopia wrote a long time ago, who was a Ohio State PhD. We, okay. We sent some of our PhDs to Harvard to bring them up to our standards. <laughs> and... and uh, he, Let them brush up
0: on those East Coast schools. And he gave the
1: example of when people walk into a hardware store and ask, I want a quarter-inch drill. That's not what they want. They want a quarter-inch hole. And, right. And how we do that, it could be done with lasers today and sure. all these kinds of things. So, the technology changes. And if you want a job in the future as an individual, don't depend on anybody else except yourself to com- commit that. Right. And, and I believe books help you that. On my website, uh, com. Thank you. Some of the books we've talked about here Good. we have descriptions of. Uh, and I have one section of books that every leader should have read by age 30. So I've already failed. Okay, but if you're over 30, <laughs> it's still okay. Uh, okay. And, all right, you're going to give me a might, pass. Yeah, they might... <laughs> People might want to look at that uh, section, even though they're over 30. All right, all right, all right. I'm sure a bunch of our listeners will
0: not be. They are probably very interested in learning your wisdom today. And thank you again for being on. It's a privilege to have you, as I said, Dr. Blackwell. And um, I'm sure that our listeners are going to find some wise tidbits that you've shared with us
1: today. Well, thank you, Brett.